0: Monaco & Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence, electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the central and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available Super Cruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified.
1: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Christmas trees have been decorated. New Year's Eve outfits are planned. And Monocle on Culture is subsisting on a diet of pure mince pies. They can only mean one thing. The end of the year is nigh... 2022 your days are numbered as the year draws to a close it's time to look back on the cultural gems that the past 12 months have offered up and pass our judgment on which deserve the most praise i'm joined in that endeavor to find the top three albums books and films by the music journalist and host of the last bohemians podcast kate hutchinson cultural and literary critic mir levitin and the film critic for the telegraph tim robey Welcome all to the program. Are we feeling festive me? I'm going to start with you. Are you feeling vibey?
2: I'm I'm loving it. I'm Deep in mince pies.
1: The red sweater is looking good.
2: And thank you. Um, you know, sparkly nails. I'm, <laughs> yeah. re- I'm ready. Jingling.
1: And Tim's got his bobble hat on in the studio.
3: I do also have what I can only describe as a festive frog in my throat. Okay. A very festive frog. You started just, the parties early. Yeah, it's just croaking in there. Okay.
1: Yeah. And Kate's always feeling festive.
4: Bar humbug.
1: Oh, come on.
4: I've got a bit of the bar humbug this year, and I'm hoping that by talking about all this great culture that's been going on it's gonna get you in the vibe yeah pull me out of it
1: okay well we're going to start with you we're going to start somewhere which hopefully is going to get you feeling vibey we're going to start with kendrick lamar let's have a clip first of united in grief
0: I grieve different
1: That was Kendrick Lamar, Kate Hutchinson's first choice. She was dancing to it, so I feel like she's feeling a little bit more festive. Tell us why this sits at the top of the programme.
4: You can hear why he's won Pulitzer, right? I mean, (laughs) and also that incredible drumbeat, that is the first track of, of 18 on this double album, and it's... Just absolutely slays that drumbeat. I love it. So, this is the fifth album from the Californian Rap Titan. And, you know, like, I'm just going to sling some cliches around. It's his most ambitious, it's his most personal, and it's a double album. It's 18 tracks long. So, it's pretty heavy going. Is it
1: a tour de force? I think I've got some eyes around the room that are asking if it is a tour de force.
4: I think it's safe to say that it's a tour de force. It's a
1: double album. So, it's, you know, it's an epic.
4: Rap. Yeah, an epic it is. I think it's interesting that two of the biggest albums this year, Mr Morell and the Big Steppers and Beyonce's Renaissance, they sort of share a similar theme and that theme you can see on the album cover where Kendrick is wearing a crown of thorns holding one of his children with I believe it's his partner and other child in the background.
1: Perfect perfect album for Easter more Gr- than Christmas perhaps. A
4: great Easter album <laughs> and you know and he's really, it's really about sort of rejecting the hero worship that's been thrust upon them and certainly in the case of Kendrick. Now this album is so dense. It's like an impressionistic canvas where he's working through some really tough and knotty themes such as racial injustice, generational trauma, objectification, double standards. He's musing on being a father and fatherhood and on family. But it yeah. was very interesting that he didn't shy away from trying to tackle some quite uh, tricky subjects and and kind of coming to the conclusion that he's not perfect, he's an imperfect person trying to make sense of the world, as we all are.
1: And the hip-hop music should be about something, can mean something, coming back to the political roots of something like that, right?
4: Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think I think there might there might have been an expectation, what with the Black Lives Matter movement happening in twenty twenty or, or, or kicking off once again, let's say globally in twenty twenty, that that Kendrick might make an album that was uh, I don't know broader in its scope or you know taking down Trump a peg or whatever it was, um, something that was more quote unquote political. But really, he's he's gone inwards and he's exploring the politics of the personal. It sort of takes on this sort of journey of his own. experience with therapy, I think, where he's really sort of churning through a lot of his childhood issues and stuff. I mean, it feels so raw to listen to. I listened to that track mm. again today, Mother Eye Sober, and I just, I, could, I just started crying. I mean, it's so powerful what he's saying.
1: Kate, that's very well said. And you, and you said you felt, came in and felt a little bit unprepared. Kendrick's, <laughs> we've, I'm glad we started with Kendrick. He's brought the very best of Hutchinson out. Um, the album is called Mr Morale and the Big Steppers. That was Kendrick Lamar, of course, as beautifully described by Kate Hutchinson. Thanks, Kate, for going there at the top of the show. Um, Mia, it's lovely to have you back on the programme. I think we, we saw you last in spring, more springtime waters. So now we're reviewing the year and you're starting off with John Foss's Septology. This is nothing if not an epic as well.
2: Absolutely. I was going to say, it um, definitely qualifies for epic status. It is uh, 825 pages. So it's a bit of a commitment, but worth it. It's one sentence. So there are no full stops and very few kind of chapter breaks. But the prose teaches you how to read it. So you don't get the sense of overwhelm. And it, the best word to describe it is really luminous. So the project is about... It's narrated by an artist towards the end of his life, thinking about religion and friendship and love and art. And... He keeps coming back to this concept of, you know, light coming at the darkest time. So I think that's very pertinent to this period of Advent and also, you know, just the year that we've had.
1: So this is a Norwegian novel. It's published by, F- by Fitzgerald in translation here in the UK. And it sounds like an amazing thing. Reading around, reading, I'd heard of it. I couldn't recall a review I'd read of it. And it just sounds amazing. So it's, it's basically a man and his, his doppelganger, am I right? That's sort right. Sort of in some nor- sort of Norwegian backwater.
2: Indeed. So yeah. he's a, it's, he lives on the coast. He's widowed, and he has a friend who has the same name, who's also an artist. And it's purposely unclear whether it's kind of a sliding doors. The friend is an alcoholic and dying, and you know he himself had a problem with alcohol in the past. So it's it's just an interesting play on on identity. You mentioned it's published by if it's Crowded. The interesting thing is that he's very well known in Norway often on the bookies list for favourites for the Nobel. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, internationally, it's a Koldova Knauskald that's had much more success, which, you know, I attribute to Knauskald being more of a literary hottie. (laughs) Right, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) This
1: guy's got a beard, but he wears it less well, well, I see from photos. I
2: mean, I think the translator (laughs) of of Septology put it very well. He said that... um, Karlové is like um, is like Paul, and uh, Fosse is like George. So he's he quote unquote the quiet one, mystical, spiritual, and probably the best craftsman of all the Norwegian writers. So uh, good
1: knitwear though, George Harrison. Quite yeah, so yes. it's for, for the season. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's beautiful. Well, this is the time of year to 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 invest in Septology by John Fosse, um, published by Fitzcarraldo as uh, as recommended by Mia Levitin. Um, Tim, we're going to start with you. Uh, this is Mass. It's a directorial debut from Fran Krantz. Where are, who's Fran Krantz and where are we in Mass? Fran
3: Krantz is an actor turned filmmaker who came up with this idea and started writing it. And it reads like a play in many ways. If mm-hmm. you read the, the screenplay, you'd think this is a play. It's four people sitting in a room uh, talking about the worst thing that's ever happened to them, which I'll explain a little bit more about in a second.
1: It's not about Christmas, is it? He
3: then realised <laughs> he then realised that he, was, he didn't really have a chance to get this in the theatre. And then I think COVID also came in. And suddenly it became clear that um, making it as a film was much more workable as an independent film. So he kind of retooled it that way and cast four actors from stage and film, to play these characters. It's two sets of parents, and they're sitting in a a church function room, hence mass slightly, but they're also talking about the murder that has occurred of one of their children by the other one, i.e. at school, at a Parkland-type shooting. There's been six years of legal wrangles and recriminations and grief and so on. And the couple, played by Martha Plimpton, Jason Isaacs, are the ones who... Uh, lost their child as a victim of the massacre. And the other couple, played by Ann and Reed Burney, are the couple who lost their child as the culprit of the massacre because their son also killed himself at the end of it. And they, so they have, let's say, an awful lot to work through. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, it's quite mesmerizing. And in fact, it really does function as a film because of the close-ups. I right. mean, on on stage, so this, does
1: this all happen? Is this very stagey? It, does it, it all happen it, in one room?
3: It happens in one room, but the camera does a lot of very good manoeuvres around mm. these actors, and we get so much detail in their performances from the from the close-ups that we, we would never get on stage. Even if you were craning your necks from the front seats, you wouldn't get that. And I do think that these actors do some of the best work they've ever done. I will single out, for example, Jason Isaacs best known as uh, Lucius Malfoy from from the uh, Harry Potter series, of course, but a very, character, very... Character,
1: character expert.
3: A very good yeah. veteran of British TV and, and film, uh, who I always think is extremely charismatic and very, very funny in The Death of Stalin, for example. In this, he's just... So brilliant. So brilliant. He's the one who doesn't really want to be there at first. He doesn't understand what the point of this process is. He's there for his wife who's who thinks that it's going to be helpful for her therapy. He doesn't think it's going to be helpful at all. And he kind of wants to blot out everything that the other two are saying. And Dowd's character uh, is trying to kind of achieve forgiveness and redemption and brings them a gift and there's something very religious about her and a rather cloying and you understand that she's, you know, her damage and her husband has a very loyal equality, he's been through all The questions, and he realizes what he can and can't say. There are certain things that he won't admit to, or he won't agree happened on the day to do with his son's mental health, for example. But I just think this film is amazing, Uh, and it's definitely one of the best acted film films of the year. And even though it may sound intensely bleak and harrowing, it is fundamentally (laughs) about forgiveness and about trying to reach across a divide. It's not. It's not. I mean, it's partly about gun violence and so on. Of course, that's a theme in there, Mm. but it's also about. What seems like an unworkable divide in America between sets of people and how we might try and cross it.
1: Thanks, Tim. That was Mass, and that uh, was a directorial debut from Fran Krantz. We're switching it up. It's uh, Charlotte Adigeri and Boris Pupol. This is Kate's next choice. Uh, Let's have a clip of (laughs) Belinda. We turned on, to his dated expression of sixpence there, didn't we, slightly? We're back in music territory. Kate, this Belgian duo, lots of fun.
4: Yeah, I think like Kendrick Lamar's album was racing through a lot of hot-bottom topics, this record, Topical Dancer, also touches on a lot of buzzwords and buzz phrases. let's say, like cultural appropriation and misogyny and social media vanity, etc., etc. But it does it in a very playful way. It's a super upbeat, fun-poking record that actually even comprises a, an entire song out of a, a, a laugh, Charlotte's laugh. Uh, so it's taking these issues and it's taking these things that we, that we talk about and that they've talked about on tour. You know, they're two friends that have been on tour all around the world and have shared their experiences and then they funneled them into this quite almost conversational record, if you like. You know, it's based on the things that they... Chat about in the back of the bus, both being Belgians with an immigrant background. And so both having this very specific, you know, experiences of things like racism. You know, in Belgium, um, you know, we, we that's been a, a massive conversation in the UK and the US, but you don't necessarily in pop music hear that from a European perspective. So that was really interesting too, I think.
1: Um, they're very effortless, aren't they? As well. I mean, this is a, such a lovely record. They seem very charming, right? They're very kind of they learn, they sort of wear their lear- learning very lightly as musicians, it seems, right? It's just sort of there's a lot of love that just pours out of this LP. I found I really enjoyed that this record this year as well.
4: Definitely, and it's it's co-produced by Solmax as. <coughs> Well. So it came out on their Dewey label and I think you can hear that it has those sort of, uh, corner- of cornerstones <laughs> of that sort of Dewey sound, which is techno that's left field and, you know, recalling to Belgian newbie, but then also bringing in pop and bringing in, and also music from around the world as well. There's lots of sort of uh, Zouk influences on mm. this record, lots of French Caribbean influences on this record. It's a triumph of the spirit. <laughs> there
2: we go there's the christmas spirit that's good isn't it We've <laughs> we got found there. it eventually
1: we have got there <laughs> that was charlotte adigeris and boris pupil and uh May, we're coming to you next um and you're going to tell us about the wonderful helen de witt's novella from this year
2: that's right so the wonderful helen de uh, graces us with the english understand wool which is part of a series released by new directions um uh, of short books called Storybook N.D., which promise the pleasure one felt as a child reading a marvelous book from cover to cover in an afternoon. Hmm. So, you know, to your question of how long it takes to read a book. You're mixing
1: it up. Yeah, you know, Indeed. Afternoon. I like I, it. You know. I like I've,
2: it. It was a little bit of a Goldilocks approach. You know, big book, <laughs> tiny novella, and then I'm going to go with a medium to, at the end. Something for everyone. But I do think there's something to that enjoyment. And I'm you know, really for this trend we're seeing towards the novella. I was delighted this year to see um, two very short books on uh, the Booker shortlist, including the wonderful Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These, um, which is a gem of a, of a novel. Shrieka Walker was also quite short, at 152. And so, you know, there are authors that work by accrual and throw everything in there and there are authors that work by elimination. Um and the interesting thing about Helen DeWitt is that she she can do both.
1: So I know her from Lightning Rods, which is completely brilliant bananas kind of satire Bonkers. on male Outlandish. office behaviour yes. and how you might deal with that. This is also a satire, I understand. It is. I know you can't say too much about it cause it's only 64 pages long. <laughs> That's right. But where vaguely are we in this, with, with the English understand world, what was such a bizarre title?
2: So she is uh, satirising the publishing industry with whom she had quite... Um, a hard time with the publication of her first novel. So Mm -hmm. she had a really hard time getting a book deal to begin with. And then when she did, there were legal issues and typesetting issues, so much so that, you know, led her to kind of suicidal depression. Um, And it took her a really long time to write um, her next book. So I think it's kind of her, you know, um, sweet revenge on publishing industry to have her (laughs) protagonist, who's a 17-year-old girl, um, kind of Play with, uh, play with the publishers when she gets a $2.2 million book deal.
1: Okay, nice. That'll set off some, set off some minds in the minefield of publishing. Indeed. Um, thanks, Mia. That's Helen DeWitt's Shorts But Sweet, The English Understandable. I'm so pleased I got the title out correctly. In the end. Um, Tim, we're coming back to you um, and Movie Land. Um, tell us a little bit a bit about... Ascension. We're in we're in the documentary realm here.
3: Yeah, this is actually one of two documentaries I've picked, which are very contrasting. <clears throat> uh, this one again came out back in January, but is now on Amazon Prime for anyone who subscribes to Amazon Prime. It's there. Uh, it is a stunning film about Chinese social mobility. Uh, it's directed by the Chinese American filmmaker Jessica Kingdon, who is a new name to me. Um, but she structures it as a sort of essay film. It, it's a non-narrative film, and she doesn't interview anyone. She doesn't. There's no voiceover narration. We 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 essentially deal with it through entirely through the imagery that she presents to us. She starts with images of uh, discarded uh, items on the streets in China. We see uh, these. Uh, uh, rental bikes, which are in in, in, in uh, Beijing, they're uh, they're black and yellow, and we see them. From above, in a kind of god's eye shot, just kind of littering the streets, they look almost weirdly organic. They mm. look sort of almost it's like something bees are doing, uh, and the sheer amount of uh, product that has been put there and which is not being used is made clear. And then we move into the the realms of um, the, the working class and factories and factory life, uh, and what's going on in the places in China that manufacture all those little bits of gubbins that you buy for eBay on for you know for sixty. 6p (laughs) where where are those made and who is it that does them like what what are people's hands doing when those things are put through machine bits of rubber we move into a, a factory that manufactures sex toys and we see them literally kind of putting breasts onto dolls and things like this and creating cavities in sex toys and all the many hundreds of people who are involved in that but then as the film carries on as i say it's entirely told imagistically it kind of climbs up through the ranks into the kind of middle management and we see people being given instructions on etiquette as flight attendants and so on and exactly how to deal with customers and to be as obsequious as possible and to respect the status of anyone who's sort of meant to be above them and so on uh, and we we do we climb up to the the top of the management and to the the places in the high up in the hotels uh, which only the very richest in society could possibly afford to stay in, etc. Uh, and the film just takes you on that journey and scares you quite a bit. To be honest, it's it's not a, a an easy film to watch. It's quite unsettling. Uh, it's and quite
1: it's, balletic, though, isn't it? It is because yeah. there, because there's no talking heads to kind of interrupt the the the. the, the 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 movement and the montages of these actions it's kind of a really mesmerising
3: it's really hypnotic, beguiling thing for yeah. sure and it all flows so mellifluously it gives you this sense of a machine that's running very smoothly and yet rather unsettlingly uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and and prompts all sorts of questions about about Chinese society.
1: It's amazing. It's kind of... It, it's, it's also an amazing feat of access, I suppose, and patience in gaining all that access and presumably smuggling quite a lot of those tapes out of China, I would have thought. Absolutely. It's not that easy to do this. And I'm,
3: I'm fascinated by the fact that um, Jessica Kindon doesn't speak... Cantonese I believe it is mainly in the film and so she's recording all this stuff and she doesn't even know what people are saying and in the edit she kind of got it translated for her and realized oh this little conversation in the background of the shot between these two people in the factory is actually very interesting they're talking about the issue with their lunch break let's have that mm. uh, and so she sort of it came together in the edit in that way and points were made that way Beautiful. That is Ascension.
1: Uh, The director is Jessica King-Don. It was nominated for 2022 Academy Award for Best Documentary. It is well worth checking out. Is that on Amazon Prime? It is. Um, And presumably elsewhere as well, but that's uh, Ascension. Thanks, Tim. Great recommendation. Um, We're going to music land, Kate. Hello. Rosalia.
4: Rosalia.
1: That's a good cue.
4: Said like a true Stan. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So good, so, so so good, so, so so good, so
4: good.
0: Vive te quiero, conmigo. Yo, yo, yo te quiero hentai. Yo te quiero
1: hentai. Was Elliot with a clip of something called hentai from the al- album? Mammy,
4: I mean, you can hear that very beautiful sort of piano ballad that's being sort of aggressively dis- bisected by gun- gunshots. I mean, it's a weird pop record and I think that maybe unites all of the uh, three things that I've chosen for my favourite albums of the year because I hmm. just feel like mainstream music and, and, and Renaissance, Beyonce's Renaissance is, is part of this as well, but it is unabashedly weird like this record you know Rosalia is this is her third album she's now a global superstar Ella Macuera her last album came out in 2018 which is when I discovered her and I went to interview her and saw her live show in Madrid and it was just phenomenal and so she's come from this you know this flamenco very traditional um, Spanish background and has ascended the ranks to become this global pop phenomenon um, and I think it's quite hard to do that without losing you know your original sound or losing that weirdness and if anything they've really kind of amped up on motor Mami. um and I think that track is just it's just one <laughs> of them I mean she, it samples burial she covers yeah. daddy Yankee or she does a sort of spin on a daddy Yankee song she's she's referencing uh salsa legends like Willie colon but I also Willie
1: colon sounds like it might have been a mis- misprint but who knows
4: Willie Co- Willie colon
1: oh willie colon um, okay, the spa- in the Spanish Willie semicolon on, I really,
4: yeah, well if if this, if this Very was a Fitz Caraldo novel it would be, you know, no colon. Okay,
1: <laughs> bring it full circle. Like Ooh, it. I wanted okay. to have a a coder in this programme,
0: like I
4: like it. But I would say that um I think that this record, you know, has also there's been a bit of backlash about uh Rosalia appropriating flamenco music. She's a white Catalan woman and she's also uh, exploring and using lots of Afro-Latin genres and a bit like Kendrick Lamar's record as well. You know, I think I that think they're, they're, they're imperfect albums that uh, make you ask questions and I think that's what great pop music, or great music does.
1: So why is 2022... Is it why is it kind of made such weird music? Do you think is it a post lockdown thing? Is it people need something really kind of memorable to use in tiny little TikTok clips? Is it something that is very live kind of transfers to the live experience? If we're if we're talking about selling tickets, where are we going?
4: I mean, I think you might have uh, s- summarized it. Oh, sorry, there. I think I think that TikTok t- TikTok thing's really interesting, and this idea that interesting sa- that what jumps out. What jumps out, and I think you know I, I, you can definitely hear that um, that I mean that that so that may micro
1: samples and little bits, yeah
4: yeah, like the bittiness of it, the sort yeah. of um the kind of patchworkiness of it and the way that pop music is um, is is sewn together now
1: beautiful, as summarized because we were discussing Rosalia's motto mummy, and we heard a bit of hentai let's go to Louise Gaudi, Mia Leverton with trespasses, in what realm are we here?
2: So this is a medium-length book. <laughs> um, it is,
1: You're sitting yeah, out, I like yeah, this. So that take me to read? Yeah, no, I like this, I like this, I like where we're going with this. I think
2: it's really interesting what Kate was saying about the medium of sharing affecting the actual work, right? Because you did see it at a time when... Book covers are being affected by them being shared on Instagram, mm. Mm. and book talk is also affected. I'm not sure that it's affecting what people write yet, but I can tell which authors you are on social media or not. You mm. know, I don't think Jan Fosse could have written his kind of long meditative stream of consciousness if he were on Instagram. So it's kind of interesting to. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
2: but yeah, so Trespasses is historical fiction. You know, this is a year where we lost Hilary Mantel, who I think kind of transformed the genre. Mm. And I do think it is one of the functions or one of the great things about fiction that it can bring you to a place in time through well-rendered characters that can make you live through historical events in a way that nonfiction maybe has a harder time doing, with some exceptions, such as Anne Frank. Mm. And it's also kind of a reclamation of the female experience of that time because you know we tend to think about violence and war and sort of male terms like there's this anecdote my parents tell about reading war and peace in school where the boys would read war and the girls would read peace and I think Louise has really managed to bring those two together because you know the troubles are very prevalent it's the story of a love affair between a, a Catholic school teacher and a Protestant lawyer who's married and he's One of the few Protestant barristers who's questioning the non-jury trials at the time and the police in Ireland. And so she, you know, has this affair with him that's kind of rendered in a very personal, intimate way. Uh, And yet, you know, it's on the backdrop of massive troubles as they are
1: so the love and affection is against this awful backdrop in a garrison town right so there's a horrible dichotomy there of where we are in the british isles or, yeah. so it's
2: based on um, where louise kennedy grew up herself before the family had to move so she her family also owned a bar kushla the protagonist works part-time in her Brothers Bar, so they're Catholics. Catholic-owned bar in the Protestant town, uh, and so you know there's a lot of class and sectarian tensions there.
1: And I want to ask you just just briefly, Mir, about the kind of historical fiction aspect of this, because it's such a strange thing. We, we mentioned Hilary Mantel, who bestrides the genre you know, rightfully so, I suppose, as you say, reinvented it. I kind of wonder whether in reviewing historical fiction and as readers of it and consumers of it as well, and where it maybe even sits in the the covers of those books, we feel like there is a certain cut-off point for historical fiction, that if it's in the Troubles, the Northern Irish Troubles, then it's sort of almost like it becomes a different genre somehow because it's too close to where we live now. Do you know what I mean? I wonder whether on the sliding scale of historical fiction as opposed to contemporary fiction, whether that where we get off that pass. Do you know uh, what I mean?
2: Absolutely. No, because I hesitated to even use that word. And I asked actually mm. the, the literary editor of the Irish Times, whether it was considered historical or not. And mm. Of course, deflected with it depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because there are some people who are still kind of very focused on reparations for me. And, you know, obviously there are people alive, many people alive who experienced it. But I do think it's pertinent because it offers a space to work out the past and process it, right? Like Mm -hmm. all art does in a certain regard. And I do think that takes some time. So whereas I think you have seen a clutch of fiction coming out, dealing with the troubles, to me suggests that we're ready to process that now. Whereas, you know, the kind of glut of pandemic lit this year, some of which was better than others. But for me, overall, I don't think we have enough distance from that to process it. Too soon collective experience yeah
1: yeah no it's interesting stuff that is trespasses beautifully described by mia levitin the author of course is louise kennedy we're going to finish tim with you and the rock documentary if it indeed is one that ruled 2022 and that is moon age daydream
3: this floated your boat your bowie boat it really did yeah it was a bit of a bowie year for me i got myself an aladdin saint tattoo on my forearm which i'm displaying to the fellow guests <laughs> nice. um, and this film kind of triggered it i must say because i saw it just before can and it slightly blew my mind i'm going to tell no one where it is streaming where it is available to stream or which you know services one, one could watch it on one's laptop because that is not the way to see it <laughs> you have to go and see it with an audience on a big screen there will be more opportunities it's bound to be nominated for the Best Documentary Oscar, like Ascension was, it could win. It could also and deserves to be nominated for Best Sound because Brett Morgan, the director, hired the best people in the business as sound editors to work on this film, a whole team of them, Oscar-winning people. And they did an incredible job because they're sifting through the entire archive that was opened up to them by the Bowie estate, everything that he ever kept, much of which has never been put out there. And they had access to this for years. And they poured over it. And of course, what these things are varies so much. It's sort of scratchy old uh, handheld footage from his very early days, the London gigs, all the way up to, you know, the sort of high-end pop videos and and all sorts and interviews that he was doing later in his career, all of which had to be sort of melded into one fluid piece for the film. Uh, And so kind of using those elements and getting them to kind of laying them over each other and doing all that sort of stuff has been an incredibly big job for them to do. And this
1: feels like John Fosso. This feels like a novel with very little punctuation in it. This feels like well, a, a film that's one sentence, doesn't
3: it? Yeah, I get that. And also it does tally with the previous documentary Ascension, in that <laughs> it doesn't have the talking heads mm. and it doesn't explain things. And in fact, the only person explaining anything is Bowie, which is great. The only person who really talks to us on screen is Bowie. And, he, and
1: Russell Harty, fortunately. A tiny
3: bit of Russell Harty. Yeah. yeah. Just the just a <laughs> tiny little insert of him. That's true. But uh, there's very... but. And, You know, that's merely an aside in the otherwise (laughs) rich carpet of Bowie-ness that we basically get from this film. And it does a really good job of taking you through a sort of semi-chronology of Bowie's artistic journey without getting bogged down in there in sort of like, oh, what was the next album? Oh, yeah, Mm. then he did this and then he did this. And it, it manages to kind of tip you into a sort of slightly dream state of going through Bowie's career very cleverly i mean there are things i wish it could have added it is it's long it doesn't feel long it's 2 hours 20 and whips by but I, I miss sections of the last sort of 10 15 years of his career some of those later albums it only really touched on a tiny bit but in terms of as a sort of overview and as a a dive into the kind of psyche of bowie and what he was thinking about what he was trying to do and what his songs achieved I do think it's pretty marvellous
1: yeah it's wonderful stuff and as you say go and see it in the in the theatre go and see it in the cinema it's an amazing thing the sound is incredible and just lastly on that there are lots of kind of takes of songs. The audio mix is really, really interesting. There are lots of ways into songs that you think you know super well that you haven't quite heard this kind of version of as well.
3: Absolutely. He's been given the individual elements so he can isolate yeah. tiny bits of vocal and he can do all sorts of things that you may not have picked up on before and rare live versions that... I mean, I think the version of Let's Dance in the film is so much better than the one on record. Mm. I love it. Yeah, uh, He's so much more animated and into it. And So there's all sorts of that stuff. There's all sorts of Easter eggs for fans and that
1: get yourself says Tim Roby to Moon Age Daydream that was directed by the brilliant Brett Morgan we had him on this programme you might want to spill back into the Monocle archives and listen to that about Moon Age Daydream thank you all three of you for your wit and wisdom and I think mostly picking up and loving what each other have been talking about on this programme as well so thank you very much to Kate Hutchinson Mia Leverton, and Tim Roby thanks very much guys Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chong and Steph also edits the programme we'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in.